Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, which I'm happy to say the hard copies came out this week to join the free ebook download that is available to some of you, or some of you would have seen that already. And with me today is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're now, I think, into about week 40 of this podcast, so possibly we're beginning to get a little, little bit better at it. Anyways, Simon, uh, welcome to this week's podcast. And uh, let's start, as always, by talking about what's been happening in the market this week. Well, it's been an interesting week for the for the market, um, the FTSE All Share. So the UK market will probably end up about half a percent or so. And the investment trust sector in the form of the Equity Investment Instruments Index will probably about one and a half percent up. So uh, outperforming the wider UK market. We've seen the sector average discount uh, narrow in again. Started the week at probably about 3.6 and closed within 3%. So again, if that's reflective of a little bit of buying demand and that compares to um, 22% at its widest level back in March, uh, but not quite at the 1% level that we started the year with. Still quite an impressive end to the year seems to be looming, notwithstanding the fact that the news on the virus front is not particularly encouraging and notwithstanding the fact that if you believe what's coming out of number 10 which I don't suppose that many people do necessarily believe that uh, completely. Uh, We may be still not near to a Brexit deal, but I think uh, certainly the presumption in the market is that uh, we are going to get some kind of deal. And uh, let's hope that that is the right interpretation of events. In any case, the market, as you say, has been strong and it's completing what has been a very uh, uh, interesting, volatile and indeed remarkable year. And at the end of the podcast, we might look back and just look at uh, some of the things that have done well and measure how well the investment trust sector has done. But first, let's just move on to corporate activity. It's where we normally start. And then there's been uh, an update from the Gulf Investment Fund. We mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Can you tell us what the outcome of what they were proposing has been? That's right. So um, shareholders in the Gulf Investment Fund were offered uh, a tender offer and that they could go up to 100% liquidity. uh, But the people behind the Gulf Investment Fund said there would have to be a minimum size in order for the the fund to be ongoing. So we found out this week uh, that just short of 41 million shares were tendered. But that means uh, they remain uh, sufficiently large enough to to, uh, keep in existence. Uh, They'll have 52 million shares left. uh, So that gives them some kind of critical mass. Those shareholders that have tendered, um, they will get their money back in mid-January. Uh, and for those ongoing shareholders, um, there's going to be a range of measures introduced, including a semi-annual 100% liquidity mechanism, an enhanced dividend policy, uh, and the directors and the investment advisor have agreed to take uh, a fee reduction. But the headline here is that they're still in business. And what about the share price and the rating? Has there been any move in that over the last uh, recent period? Yeah, so it's trading on a discount of about 7% or so at the moment. And I mean, you'd have expected it to have narrowed in given that you're offering uh, shareholders 100% tender offer potentially, but it will obviously be quite small. I mean, its market cap at the moment is just short of 70 million um, and it's not going to quite halve, but obviously it will be considerably smaller in size. So um, a highly specialist mandate and it's going to be quite a small vehicle um, in future. But still, I think a good example of how in the investment trust world that the boards of investment trusts can be active and they are responsive to shareholder pressure and shareholder interests. Uh, So that, I think, is a good example of the general kind of approach that uh, a board can take. But obviously, the question longer term issue would be about the size and uh, viability of the trust 
at this particular market capitalization. Let's move on then and talk about fundraising. We know there's been a lot of fundraising uh, in the last three months, and we, we did predict that there would be a bit of a rush to get a number of deals completed by the end of the year. And with Christmas coming up next week, there won't be much going on next week, I suspect. But anyway, let's just catch up on then on two or three of these fundraising exercises. The first one, let's start with ECOFIN US Renewables Infrastructure, a ticker called RNEW which is quite a good ticker and uh, joins the list of those investment companies that actually have quite interesting tickers. It's fair to say, again, perhaps one for the Anoraks. But the news with Ecofin US Renewables Infrastructure is they managed to get their IPO away. At the start of the week, they'd mentioned that uh, they were going to fall short of the minimum size of 150 million US dollars. Um, but by the end of the week, they could announce that they'd raised 125 million. Uh, so that's a successful launch. Um, the fund's manager, so Ecofin, they've subscribed for 8.5 million shares and Capricorn Investment Group have subscribed for another 22.5 million shares. So they've got a couple of key backers there at launch. Uh, and the shares start trading on this one on Tuesday, the 22nd of December. So what normally happens in these circumstances where you have an announcement, you haven't quite reached your target, how do they find the extra last uh, bit of money in these occasions, uh, Simon, from your experience? I mean, I think we talked about this in weeks gone by. I mean, IPOs are very difficult uh, to get away. I mean, obviously, market conditions have been tricky all year. And we'll have now seen, and we're going to talk about another one in a minute, but we'll have seen eight IPOs in 2020. It's highly unlikely we'll see any more, obviously, given where we are in the calendar. But they are very difficult to get away. Every now and again, you get one that, that has is solidly backed, that you are oversubscribed. But that is relatively unusual. It is more the case of uh, you know, having those conversations, trying to find a couple of key backers, maybe just uh, suggesting that people be prepared to put a little bit more than they would naturally feel comfortable with um, in order to get these things up and running. We've seen a number of IPOs fail to get away this year. And again, we've talked about those uh, in weeks gone by. But really, it's that that first 100 million or 75 million, whatever the number is, that's the most difficult amount of money to raise. And what you're clearly hoping to do is that you'll get up and running, you get your capital invested, and that enables you to come back to the marketplace and raise additional money as time goes by. And that's certainly the model we've seen over the recent five to 10 years. A number of investment companies have grown spectacularly since their initial IPOs. So in the past, perhaps we might have said there might have been a bit of arm twisting going on with uh, favoured clients and so on of the firm that's doing the IPO, a bit of kind of calling in favours and so on. But I won't ask you to comment on that, whether that's in the new city. I'm sure that isn't what goes on at all. Uh, let's talk about a second one, which you are have some knowledge of, of course, which is the Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust. Uh, this is a very interesting one that uh, is looking to do good things for society. How did that get on, Simon? Yep, it was another successful IPO. Um, they were looking to raise £100 million. They actually came in at 75 And that's quite important because they had an initial portfolio of £60 million, uh, which would be provided by their investment advisor. So Big Society Capital, that's the BSC in the title of this one, Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust. Uh, and they will start trading on the 22nd of December, so on Tuesday again. And in fact, the second IPO for Schroeder's as a house uh, within uh, a month or two. The other one being Schroeder British Opportunities, which also raised 75 million. I suppose you'd say they were at the kind of lower end of, of presumably their hopes and expectations. But nevertheless, uh, as you've just said in answer to the previous question, they've got the foothold, they've got the platform for which to, they should be able to grow that if the, if the trust actually performs in future. What kind of uh, feedback have you been getting about this general idea of 
raising money to have positive social uh, welfare consequences, you know, helping the homeless and so on. You'd think before Christmas is a good time to do that kind of uh, exercise if you're going to. But uh, have they been sort of more Scrooge than uh, Father Christmas or perhaps the other way around? I think the idea of social impact investing and, and just in general kind of doing the right thing is a very, very powerful theme. I mean, you, you cannot fail to hear a fund manager present these days without the obligatory side on ESG. It seems to be something that is being driven not just by the investment houses, but by investors themselves. And, and we've talked recently about Keystone Investment Trust and the proposals there to move across to Bailey Gifford uh, and pursue a positive change mandate. Uh, we've also talked in recent weeks about uh, HomeReit, uh, a new uh, investment company in the property sector that was launched this year. And in general, I think this is a theme that's uh, going to just increase in, in volume and traction. Um, I, I think it'll be a, a very key investment theme in 2021 and beyond. Well, indeed, a lot of younger people are interested in this kind of approach. So it'll be interesting to see if that does actually gain more traction next year. So you've said there were eight IPOs this year. How does that compare on average to uh, a typical year? And this obviously hasn't been a typical year, but how does that? how would that compare to a typical year? Yeah, it would be less than we've seen in recent years. I mean, obviously the number varies year on year, probably as a ballpark between 15 and 20 IPOs have not been uncommon in recent years. The exception to that would have been 2016. So the year of the EU referendum, as we may all remember, that was a a period where there was a lot of uncertainty, clearly. uh, And we we saw very few IPOs uh, in that year and probably comparable to this year. But the interesting thing is, even though the IPO market this year has clearly been um, hit by what's going on. In terms of issuance overall, um, it's not actually been that bad. So if you look at the, the numbers for the first 11 months of the year, I think the total something like £6.6 billion of uh, funds or capital raised across the investment company sector. And that's uh, only 16% down on the comparable period in 2019. So all things considered, I don't think that's too bad a, a, a result. And clearly, there are certain areas of the marketplace um, that really have remained in demand when we talked about infrastructure, but also those more traditional uh, long-only equity-type funds. Uh, and we can all think of those in the Bailey Giffords stable, but other funds such as Worldwide Healthcare, Allianz Technology, or Smithson that have really caught the imagination as well and issued a lot of new shares. So while we're on the issue, the question of secondary issuance, uh, there's a couple of news items to catch up on this week. Uh, let's start with Gore Street Energy Storage, GSF. It's obviously in the right sector, as you say, one of the fastball sectors. How did they get on? Yep, they were successful uh, in raising £60 million. That was an oversubscribed uh, issue, and those uh, shares started trading this week. And they've identified a pipeline of assets of a total project size of uh, 1.3 gigawatts, which sounds like a very large number indeed. Um, So basically, I think they're quite happy that that new uh, capital was deployed in good time. And then we can move on to Round Hill Music Royalty, RHM, who, as we now know, have emerged as the competitor to the very uh, popular and interesting and indeed somewhat controversial Hypnosis Songs Trust, about which we've talked perhaps rather too much this year. <laughs> what was the result of uh, Round Hill Music Royalty's uh, fundraising effort? Well, they were successful in raising an additional $46.1 million dollars. So just to remind you, um, they appeared, as you mentioned, uh, relatively recently. They had a target of $375 million, and that was really driven by the fact that they had a a pipeline 
uh, investments. Uh, so basically a number of catalogues, a seed portfolio lined up, which had been valued at £363 million. So uh, they raised £282 million through their IPO. So they're a little bit short of the, the monies necessary to effectively buy all of that uh, seed portfolio. But now, uh, following this additional $46 million or so, plus the use of a little bit of gearing, they'll be able to invest in the whole portfolio. So that's really the objective of this exercise. Okay, so now we've now got two trusts in this uh, particular sector, which is always good. There's be a little bit of room for comparisons to be made. One of the interesting questions that has been raised by a number of commentators about hypnosis, that's song, as we know it, and I dare say will be of interest when we look in more detail at Round Hill Music Royalty, is the significant uh, impact that a change in the discount rate can have. And uh, we discussed that earlier on this year, but I think in the case of um, song, you know, it's only a very small change in the discount rate, about half a percent can actually have a, a significant impact on the valuation. It would reduce it from 120 to 100 or something of that kind of proportion. You have, presumably haven't had a chance to compare these two trusts in detail yet, but what do you think about that as a, as a potential issue for trusts like this? No, it's a good question. I mean, there is sensitivity to the discount rate you use, um, particularly when you're valuing these things on long-term projected cash flows. I mean, my personal view is clearly the NAV is important and it's on a mark-to-model basis. And so the discount rate is a key element of that. But I think as time goes by, I think there'll be greater attention put on the actual uh, cash generated by these uh, two funds and their respective portfolios, because ultimately it's the cash that's going to drive the dividend. And I know there is an element that uh, people are expecting, particularly in, in the case of hypnosis, as you mentioned, um, that the discount rate will fall and therefore the NAV will rise. But I think ultimately it is a dividend story. It is an income story. And I think as time goes by and these portfolios kind of build up their own track record, we'll be able to get it, take a, a better and a clearer view on how robust the income generation is from these portfolios. But certainly a fascinating asset class. It's, it's captured the imagination this year. It certainly captured our imagination and a lot of media interest as well. But I think, as I say, as time goes by, it's really going to be the focus on how much income can they drive from these portfolios. I think that's a very fair point. Just quickly update us on how these two trusts now, how have they been trading? My recollection or my impression is that the premium on song has actually temporarily disappeared. I think it's gone to a discount, has it not? I don't know what your figures show. That's right. So certainly by our estimates, I think it's on a small discount, probably 2% or so hypnosis songs fund. In the case of Round Hill, you know, it's still very early days. They're trading on $1.02 at the moment, and we're still running off an initial NAV of $0.98. Cents. So that equates to about a 4% premium. But again, that's still very early days for that particular fund. So that's it on the fundraising front. As you say, it's been a very eventful three months anyway, if not an eventful year. Uh, and we'll be interested to see whether that rolls on into next year. We can move on to some results now. And let's start with a couple of global investment trusts. Let's start with the Scottish Investment Trust, SCIN, which has produced its annual results for the year to the 31st of October. The Scottish Investment Trust had a difficult year, I think it's fair to say, that in that period to the end of October, they had an NAV total return down 11%, and share price terms a little bit worse than that, down 12%, and that compares with a rise of 5% for the MSCI All Countries World Index. Probably not a great surprise we saw that kind of result, given that this investment trust, self-managed investment trust indeed, has a very much a contrarian value type investment approach. And we've talked again in weeks gone by 
the difference between uh, growth investment and value investment, particularly uh, in the last year or probably even the last few years, to be honest. So the manager and the investment team there, so Alistair McKinnon uh, is responsible for this one. And they kind of categorize what they attempt to identify into kind of three buckets, ugly ducklings, changes afoot and more to come. And it's kind of different variations on, on the value theme. And within that, the manager believes that actually there's some quite interesting valuation opportunities opening up. Um, some things have worked quite well for the portfolio this year, so that they've been positive on gold for some time. That clearly has been successful. But unfortunately, they've had quite a big weighting to uh, the UK marketplace or certainly relative to some of their global peers. Uh, and unfortunately, names like BT, Shell and British Land have uh, proven negative. Um, it's worth noting, actually, on the Scottish Investment Trust that uh, the dividend is, is relatively attractive and they did indeed manage to raise that by just short of 2% in the year. Um, that represents their 37th consecutive year of growth. So they fall into the AIC dividend hero category. Uh, and that was despite the fact that earnings per share fell about 27%. So they paid it an uncovered dividend. But they seem to be happy to use revenue reserves in order to keep that uh, dividend record going. So presumably they will have been encouraged by the recent mild rotation from growth to value. That would seem to play into their particular style. And uh, no doubt they're hoping that that will continue. Let's talk about BMO Global Smaller Companies next, uh, BGSC. This company's had interim results. That's right, interim results for the six months to the end of October. During that time, they recorded an NAV total return of 13%, and that compared with uh, 15% for their benchmark. In share price terms, probably just a little bit behind 13% as their discount widened out slightly. I mean, in terms of how the underlying portfolio performed, uh, they struggled a little bit in the US and the UK, uh, but did better in terms of their European and Japanese exposure. The dividend income fell quite sharply, actually, uh, 56%, but they are happy to maintain the dividend level at uh, uh, 0.55p, and they're, again, happy to use a, some revenue reserves to keep that going. They operate in the global smaller companies sector. Uh, we talked about one or two companies in there, North American Smaller, Edinburgh Worldwide and Smithson. I mean, they're up against some quite tough competition in that sector, are they not? Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, if you look at their five-year NAV total return numbers, they're up about 69%. Edinburgh Worldwide, the Bailey Gifford Fund, uh, I think we talked about last week, in fact, is up 249%. Smithson hasn't been going that, that long, to be fair, but North Atlantic smaller companies up 78%. So I think the manager has, has added value over the long term. But uh, as you say, it is a very competitive peer group. Okay, so let's move on to a trust that operates in the flexible sector, uh, and that is Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, ADIG, trading on uh, quite a significant discount. They've had some annual results out for this time to the 30th September. And in that period, their NAV total return was negative, probably down about 1% or so, and that compared with an increase of 6% for their benchmark, which is LIBOR plus 5.5%. In share price terms, uh, they did struggle, actually. And as you mentioned, they have been trading out on a discount. The share price total return in the year uh, was down 11%. So in terms of what didn't work so well for them, fixed income and credit. So this is a multi-asset type fund trying to generate um, absolute returns, um, a highly diversified portfolio. The fixed income and credit side of it didn't work. That was about negative 2% of the overall return. And there, unsurprisingly, their exposure to listed equity also detracted from performance. 
an income or the dividend is, again, a big part of this particular investment trust story. The revenue per share was down just 2% year on year to 5.58p, and their total dividend was 5.44p. So it's actually up 1.5%. And again, they're given guidance on and the dividend uh, going forward. But yes, it is a, it is really a case that they were derated in the period, and the board said that, in their opinion, that performance has to improve for buybacks to be effective. Uh, and again, we talked about this one about a month or so ago. This has been subject to a strategic review, which has seen a change in the uh, portfolio manager, Nalaka De Silva, who's the head of private market solutions at Aberdeen Standard Investments, has been appointed to take responsibility for this one. In addition to that, the investment trust has repaid some of its long-term expensive debt and they are looking to increase the uh, portfolio's exposure to private markets, probably hence the, the change of manager. The target was 40%. They're now looking to get that to 55%. So it will have greater exposure to uh, private markets eventually. As I say, I mentioned the discount, and obviously the board is wary of that, or perhaps I should say leery of that. So how have they been trading then? They have been uh, presumably not trading that well. I mean, you mentioned the share price decline over the year. How do they stack up against their uh, their peer group? So they'll be trading on a wider discount than, than most of those uh, funds in the flexible investment subsector. To be fair, there's quite a dispersion of discounts uh, and indeed premiums across that. So, uh, I mean, on average, on a market cap weighted average, it's probably about 9% for that particular peer group. But we've got various names. I mean, I think we've possibly talked about JZ Capital Partners in the past trading out on a near 80% discount. Um, albeit possibly for good reason. And you kind of go to the other end. I mean, you've got funds like Personal Assets and uh, Capital Gearing Trust um, trading out around NAV or on small premiums. So there's quite a range. I think from a shareholder's point of view, they're, they're averaging about 16 17% at the moment. And that's certainly disappointment given the 5% target. But as the board said, they want to get the performance of this thing right before um, looking to really march that discount in by using buybacks or, or some other means. Okay, so we'll move on to Finsbury Growth and Income, managed by Nick Train of Linsell Train. This is the second investment trust that he manages. Well, he obviously is a co-manager of the Linsell Trust Investment Trust. Uh, how has uh, Finsbury Growth and Income been performing? Finsbury Growth and Income announced its final results for the year to 30th of September. Their NAV total return was actually down in this period, down about 8% or so though this represented a marked outperformance of the FTSE All Share Index, which fell 17% in that time. In share price total return terms, it was down 9%. Uh, the revenue per share fell 10% year on year, and they maintained their total dividend at 16.6p. So actually, in terms of the, the, the cover, the revenue per share was at 165 so it was only slightly uncovered. Uh, and that probably is not true for most of the investment trusts in the UK equity income peer group at the moment. Nick Train, as you mentioned, has got a fantastic long-term record uh, with this particular investment trust. In fact, I think he's just marked his 20th anniversary in charge of it. Um, he's famously uh, bad news for brokers in as much as he really has a kind of buy and hold strategy. I think portfolio turnover was just 1% in the latest financial year. Although a few new names have popped into the portfolio over the last 18 months or so. So Fever Tree, PZ Cousins and Experian uh, amongst the 25 holdings or so that uh, consists of the portfolio. It's interesting, actually, Anthony Townsend, who's been the chairman of this one since the start of 2008, um, is actually standing down uh, in the new year. And he remarked in his chairman's statement that when he uh, took over this particular investment trust, or became the chairman, I should say, of this particular investment trust, it had assets of something like 145 million. Uh, it's now at 1.8 billion. 
So quite a substantial growth record. Uh, and some of that's obviously through performance and some of it's through issuance of new shares as well. Yes, it has been a spectacular performance. And uh, indeed, I can remember interviewing uh, Nick Train when they just set up Linsel Train at the very beginning, that long ago, I can go back to. Of course, they really had really little to play with at that point, but they've done extraordinarily well since then. Now, of course, Finsbury Growth and Income is actually in the, I think, in the equity income sector, where it's a very different animal to the uh, most of the other trusts in the equity income sector. Uh, and it doesn't pay much of a yield, but of course, it's more than compensated by that by its uh, handsome capital gains that it's generated for its shareholders. Do you think it's, a, it's an outlier in the equity income sector, not just for performance, but in terms of the way it's managed? I mean, it is actually a talking point across the industry, the fact that you have one of the largest, if not the largest, actually, uh, investment trusts in the UK equity income uh, subsector, uh, yet yields just under 2% at the moment. I mean, to be fair to Nick and the way that this is run, the yield has contracted over the years. It's a function of the fact it has performed so well in capital terms that that yield has, has come down. If you actually look at the dividend record, they did rebase it, uh, to use the terminology, back in 2008-9 after the financial crisis, but they have absolutely grown it in real terms. It's just the capital element has grown that much more. I think you are right. It is it is different from pretty much every other investment trust in the UK equity income space. In, in performance terms, it's generated a 66% NAV total return over five years. And just to put that into perspective, um, the FTSE All Share uh, is up 32% over that five-year period. And if you go back over Nick's 20-year track record, it's even more spectacular. Let's move on to another sector which has always interested me, and this is the micro-cap. Well, it's not a distinctive sector, but it is a distinctive uh, style of investing, shall we say. We've got two trusts have been re- reported results this week. One of them is Mighton UK micro-cap, and the other River and Mercantile UK micro-cap. Unfortunately, they're not directly comparable. One's produced interim results, and the other's published its annual report. But um, tell us first about Mighton UK Microcap and their uh, performance. Yep, so Mighton UK Microcap had its interim results out to the end of October. And in that six-month period, their NAV total return was up about 22%. In share price terms, even better, actually up 32%. And this all comes down to the strong performers of various stocks. So Gervais Williams and Martin Turner are responsible for this one. Um, they've been running this portfolio since 2015, April 2015, so over five years now. About 125 holdings, so quite a diversified portfolio, of which over 80% are AIM-traded companies. They have also have an annual redemption uh, mechanism on this one. Um, so basically, shareholders can opt to redeem at NAV less cost off the top of my head. Uh, and that saw about 20% of the share capital redeemed uh, midway through this year. Okay, and then the second one, River and Mercantile UK Microcap, RMMC. Uh, I should say the Mighton UK Microcap has the useful ticker MINI. Uh, but what's the story with River and, River and Mercantile's uh, trust? It's a relatively uh, new manager, I think. Yeah, that's right. So George Enzor has been responsible for this investment trust since uh, February 2018, actually. So two and a half years, not too far off, three years now, actually, to be fair. But time flies quickly in the investment trust sector. They had uh, annual results out to the end of September. In that time, they had an NAV total return of about 9% or so, and that compared with a decline of 3% for the, the benchmark index. Over that period, it did see its discount widen out as well. This one is, is differentiated uh, from the, the Mitem Fund by a far more concentrated portfolio. So it's got about 42 holdings at the moment. Uh, and in that period, actually, uh, there were 13 new entries 
uh, and 14 positions exited. So they try and keep that list uh, pretty tight. The other uh, different aspect of this particular one compared with the Mitem fund is that rather than have an annual redemption mechanism, it's built into the company. If the size of the company were to go over, um, off the top of my head, I think it's about 100, 110 million for any period of time, it looked to return capital to shareholders. And that was kind of built into the investment trust structure at launch. The idea being um, that the, their manager didn't want the fund to, to grow to the point where um, he wouldn't be able to invest as far down the size scale in the degree of concentration that he wished. So he wanted to keep that discipline. Uh, and that's worked well over the life of this particular investment trust. There have been three returns of capital. Yeah, so that's an interesting contrast to uh, what we say about investment trusts in general, which is that they need to get to you know a decent size to be viable. In this particular sector, it's a rather different story. They want to keep it to a small size so they don't run into capacity issues. They run out of opportunities they can profitably invest in. And so how do these two trusts compare in size and rating? In size terms, they're not too far apart in terms of their market cap. Mighton has a market cap of about 72 million. Um, River and Mercantile is probably about 85, so a little bit larger. And it's fair to say that Mighton UK microcap trade on a, on a tighter discount, so probably about 8% or so at the moment, compared with River and Mercantile on a 20% discount, so a wider discount. In any of the total return terms, over five years, uh, River and Mercantile has the stronger performance record. It's, uh, it's up at 99% compared with 37% for Mitin. However, over the last 12 months or so, Mitin is ahead, up 38% compared with 20% for River and Mercantile. So I think what we can say about this end of the marketplace, it is it is absolutely a fascinating section of the market. There are inefficiencies there, and a good manager could undoubtedly add um, performance, though it will be volatile by definition. Let's move on now to some overseas trusts, and let us start with a trust that's reported uh, annual results to the 30th of September, and that is BlackRock Frontiers. Uh, perhaps you could tell us what they've had to say, and can you give us a quick definition of what a frontier market is? So a frontier market, it's, it's basically an emerging market. Different people define it in different ways. In the case of the BlackRock team, they've been quite clear that they look to invest in the MSCI emerging with the exception of the eight largest markets within that. So basically that takes out markets such as China, India, South Africa, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's what they're trying to get to. Uh, in this particular period, so this was their annual results to the end of September, a difficult period for BlackRock Frontiers. NAV total return down 24%, and that compared with a decline of 20% for their benchmark. They kind of were concerned about the impact from coronavirus and they reduced the net exposure of their portfolio down. They were geared uh, in mid-February. By the time they got to early March, they were holding a little bit of cash effectively. The things that detracted were uh, exposure to Indonesia and the Philippines and also stock selection in Malaysia as well. But they, they play a number of interesting themes across the frontier market space, uh, including uh, consumption habits of the middle class, decarbonisation, uh, and also they've looked to play a cyclical recovery as well. One thing is worth mentioning, although it's not kind of built for income, it does actually throw off quite a, a handsome dividend. The revenue return per share uh, was down, unsurprisingly, uh, year on year. But actually, the total dividend they've declared, although it's down 10%, it still equates to $0.07 cents per share. And actually, on a yield basis, they are yielding about 4 4.5% at the moment. It's also worth saying, actually, that every five years they offer shareholders uh, the chance to tender their shares up to 100% at NEV less cost. And uh, this will be the third liquidity event 
in 2021, the early part of 21. So let's move on to another investment trust, Schroeder Asia Pacific, which has also been producing annual results for the same period, the 30th of September, but with a rather different outcome there, I think. That's right. So um, a good period in NAV total return terms. Schroeder Asia Pacific was up 18% in that year to the end of September, and that compares with a rise of 12% for its benchmark. Um, So they benefited from some strong stock selection in the period, uh, particularly in Singapore, Taiwan, China, Korea and Hong Kong. They did have some detractors and actually being underweight China during the year um, detracted from performance, but not enough to uh, affect the overall result. And net revenue per share was actually down a little bit in the period, down about 20% or so, but they're still recommending a final dividend of 8p, and that's actually down from uh, 9.7p paid in the previous year. Um, as I think we discussed in previous weeks, Matthew Dobbs, who's been the long-standing manager of this one, I think he's been responsible for it for 25 years or so, he's actually retiring next year, and Richard Sennett and Abbas Bakoda uh, assuming responsibility, and that's from the end of March next year. As it happens in the uh, Investment Trust Handbook, I did a forum, a kind of Q&A with a number of uh, leading uh, Investment Trust experts. One of the questions I asked them was, well, which of the departures from the Investment Trust sector that you will most regret or most miss? And nearly everyone mentioned Matthew Dobbs as being one of the managers who they were sorry to see go because he's done such a spectacularly uh, good job over many, many years. Let's move on to Aberdeen New Dawn which has produced interim results, this time for the six months to the 31st of October. How have they been performing? They did well, actually, during that period. Their NAV total return was up 21%, and that compared with 18% for their benchmark. In share price terms, even better, actually up 26%, as the discount narrowed from about 14% into about 11%. So a number of things worked for them well in this period, particularly holdings in Taiwan, South Korea and China. Uh, and also the manager's prepared to be a little bit controlling as well. He talked about investing in a Macau casino operator, Sands China, while selling down some of his Southeast Asian exposure, including a little bit of Thailand. So a good set of results for Aberdeen New Dawn. Not quite sure how that would sit with his ESG report. Gambling is not a particularly uh, favoured uh, ESG metric to have on your scorecard, but each to his own, I suppose. Let's talk finally in this particular segment about JP Morgan European Smaller Companies Trust. They, uh, I think, have done pretty well in their latest results. That's right. They had interim results out for the six months to the end of September. And as you say, they have done well. Their NAV total return was up uh, 49% during that time. And that compares with a benchmark return of 35%. So, yeah, pretty positive. Uh, Stock selection benefited the performance here. And particularly the themes that Francesco Conti, the manager, was backing. So technology, wellness and environmental themes that all proved to be pretty positive. So just on while we're on Europe, I mean, that's an interesting sector, the European smaller companies sector. I mean, Europe has been a pretty tough place to be for uh, a while in relative terms. But the smaller companies uh, trusts have done pretty well, have they not, overall? No, I think that's right. So if you look at the European small cap space, the average performance over the last 12 months or so, or even over the last six months, is up about 28%. A number of them have actually managed to double over 100% NAV total return over the last five years. So TI European growth up 119%. And the Montanara European smaller companies as well, which is one I think we talked about, up 162% over the last five years. So um, pretty attractive returns, despite the fact that it sometimes can be difficult to find investors in Europe. Yeah, smaller companies generally have uh, recovered very strongly in the last quarter, I think it's it's fair to say. 
and they will by their nature be more volatile. Um, but I'm impressed by the, the scale of the returns that some of these trusts have been able to achieve uh, in an area which is not renowned for its uh, small cap strengths. Let's move on then to some specialist trusts. Infrastructure and energy, again, we'll be talking about because they have been such a persistent theme throughout this year. Let's start off with ECOFIN Global Utilities and Infrastructure. This is a separate trust from the one which has just raised some money. Yes, that's right. And, and this has been running for, for a number of years. Actually, it was a reconstruction of, a, of an existing investment trust. But in this period, they had annual results to the end of September. And in that time, they had an NAV total return down about 3% or so, but actually in share price total return up nearly 6%. And that compares with a decline of 6% for the MSCI World Utilities Index uh, and a decline of 19% for the S&P Global Infrastructure Index. So just to be clear here, they're investing in the equity of utility and infrastructure companies. So they've got quite a big, uh, large weightings in regulated utilities, renewables, transportations, uh, and various integrated uh, players in this space. So the, the dividend is, a, again, a key part of the story. And they paid four quarterly dividends that totaled 6.55p in the year. And that was up 2% year on year. And that was despite the fact that revenue per share actually fell about 9% to just short of 5p. So obviously the dividend was uncovered. But a relatively concentrated portfolio, about 43 holdings or so, and yielding uh, not too far off of 4% at the moment. So now we can move on to Gore Street Energy Storage, one of these energy storage trusts that we've had a lot of calls to talk about in recent weeks. Uh, they've had some results out. And uh, how have they been performing? Yep, they had interim results up to the end of September. Uh, in that time, they recorded an NAV total return of 4%. Um, so again, the NAV was up 3%, and they also paid a, a dividend as well. And in fact, uh, they've committed to an annual dividend in line with the target of 7%. Uh, of its NAV, so uh, in other words, a, a minimum of a 7p. In terms of how the actual assets are performing, all the operational assets are performing in line with the manager's expectations, uh, and the sites under construction remain on schedule, and obviously that's despite the impact from the coronavirus. And um, I think we talked about this one earlier in terms of the pipeline. Uh, there is quite a significant pipeline on this one. They've got 14 projects that have a total capacity of 320 megawatts, uh, of which uh, about 110 megawatts or so is uh, operational. But the pipeline overall is 1.3 gigawatts uh, across the United Kingdom, Ireland and continental Europe. And then let's talk about the GCP Infrastructure Trust that's had also had annual results out. What have they done? So they had annual results out to the end of September. Their NAV was down 7% during that time. And, and just to be clear, this is a, an infrastructure debt fund effectively. So there's about just short of 50 investments or so um, in various infrastructure debt. Their performance was impacted by lower long-term electricity price forecasts. Uh, and they also had a number of loans revalued due to performance and contractual challenges. Though possibly more important for shareholders is that the 7.6p of dividends for the period is unchanged from the previous financial year. But they have made it clear that the forthcoming financial year, the dividend target will be reduced to 7p. And that reflects the, the different uh, environment that we find ourselves in and the desire not to increase the fund's risk profile. OK, so let's move on again quickly to get through some of these, make sure we cover most of the important results, even if quite briefly. Uh, Polar Capital Global Healthcare, a specialist uh, trust, obviously. They produce some annual results. And uh, how have they been performing? 
so in the um, year to the end of September, they generated an NAV return of about 14% and that compared with 16% for the benchmark. Their relative performance was impacted by being overweight healthcare equipment. Obviously, a lot of elective procedures were effectively stopped during the pandemic. And in fact, they've reduced that overweight and increased their weighting to biotechnology. But the, the managers there, Gareth Powell and James Douglas, they view the S&P healthcare sector as very attractively valued uh, compared with the overall market. Uh, and they believe that the structural shift in the healthcare industry as a result of the pandemic, they, they see that as, as an opportunity. Yes, it's been an, obviously a very high profile sector and there's some uh, quite big trust in this sector now. I think there's about half a dozen or even more uh, trust in the biotech and healthcare sector and they're all been performing pretty well, I imagine. That's right. There's some very strong performance numbers. I mean, over the last year, if you'd have backed a, a biotech fund, you've probably done very, very well. So Biotech Growth Trust, for instance, has over the last year is up 57% in NAV terms. Also, a company that's relatively new to the market, RTW Venture, uh, that's up 43%. But even those who have a kind of a broader uh, investment case, you look at Worldwide Healthcare, that's uh, been a strong performer, again, up 20% over the last year, and BB Healthcare up 27%. Let's move on and quickly mention uh, Jupiter Green. We said last week that uh, obviously Jupiter has lost some high-profile names in its investment trust stable, but Jupiter Green is still going and they produce some interim results. That's right. Uh, for the six months to the end of September, uh, in that time they had an NAV total return of about 28% or so, and that's broadly in line with the benchmark return. Uh, and also the share price is also about 27%. So again, a number of things worked for them during this particular period, though the investment they had in National Express detracted. But they measure themselves against the MSCI World Small Cap Index, and there's certainly some smaller companies in there as well. So let's move on then to a property company. We're not going to talk about many property companies this week for a change. There's Ediston Property Investment Company. Epic produced its annual results to the 30th of September. That's right. So and in that year, the um, NAV was actually down about 21%. Uh, but actually, the NAV total return, so taking into account the dividends that they paid, meant that the overall total return was just down 17%. And in share price terms, down 35%. And that reflected that they were derated during the year. So again, commercial property, we've talked about this a lot over the weeks and months this year. This particular investment company was hit by um, the retail warehouse sector, although the managers remain optimistic on the outlook for these assets. Uh, and it was interesting actually in terms of the rent rental collection, obviously it's been a key metric this year. During the financial year, they've collected in just over 89%. Although when deferred rent is paid back, that number goes to 97%. Uh, and in terms of the dividend that Edison Property Investment Company actually pays to its shareholders, it has been reduced year on year. So it's 4.88p. That compares with 5.75p in the previous year. And they, they cut that back in May. But the board have made it clear that they're, they're looking to rebuild the dividend level if the rent collection remains at the current level. So um, something positive for shareholders there. And then another significant sector where we've seen some movement in the ratings, as we have in the property sector in the last few weeks, uh, is the private equity sector. And there have been a couple of announcements, so NAV announcements from private equity trusts this week. Let's start with Harbourvest Global Private Equity, HVPE. Yeah, so Harbourvest announced its NAV uh, as at the end of November. 
uh, and actually that was up 9% from the end of October. But the, the real story here, and it's true for, I think we're going to come on and talk about Standard Life private equity. With these fund of funds in particular, there's a lag in terms of the underlying valuation. So up until recently, we've been seeing NAVs based on portfolio valuations as at the end of June. We've now started to get the updates through as at the end of Q3i, the end of September. That's true of Harbourvest and Standard Life. Standard Life's NAV uh, and the month was up 7% to the end of November. Uh, and it's the same story, basically, that the underlying story from these um, private equity portfolios is good. And actually, the NAVs are higher than perhaps the market was necessarily expecting. Let's quickly mention Standard Life private equity then. What's been their figures? Yep. So their NAV at the end of November was up about 7% from the end of October. And that reflected an 8% uplift in their, in their Q3 valuations. Well, that brings us to the end of the results. Uh, now, let's just so quickly take a look back then at the year. And we mentioned in passing a number of trusts which have done very well this year and a number of trusts which have struggled. That's been the story of the year. Polarisation of returns has been the story of the year. So we thought we'd have a quick look at that uh, before we finish. So if we look at sectors, first of all, Simon, let's uh, see if we gave us a ranking of the sectors uh, by share price or NAV total return performance, what would we see? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of share price performance, uh, and it won't be massively dissimilar in terms of NAV performance, technology has been the clear winner this year. Technology followed by global. So technology, the subsector is up about 50%, global not too far behind it at 44%. Uh, and obviously, uh, we can think of some very well-known investment trusts that fit into those two sectors. Asia-Pacific has probably done a lot better than most people would have expected, particularly when we got to that kind of March-April period, up about 33% in share price terms this year. And actually, Japan, not too far behind it, up 32%. But if you go to the, the other end of the scale, the laggard, unfortunately, is the UK equity income sector. That's down uh, 11% in share price terms. And I should say, these are market cap-weighted numbers. So the larger investment trusts in these spaces do have uh, an outsized impact on these numbers. And then also UK commercial property as well, which is down 7%. And again, that's slightly flattering. You know, you've got one or two big players that actually have not done not too badly. So Tritax Big Box probably being the obvious case in point, negating some of the badness, as it were, from BMO commercial property and some of those other names in that area. Right. So as we say, a lot of polarisation. We could look at the difference between the share price and the NAV performance, which is, I guess, a, also includes the effect of discount changes. And, and does that picture look different? And if so, in what way does it look different? Yeah. So the, the, the sector that's been significantly derated this year is the aforementioned UK commercial property. Uh, although NAVs are down, as we've discussed today, some of the results coming through, they've been hit far worse in share price terms. And I think that's very much the, the case of the market looking through the valuations and looking very much at those rent collection numbers and and perhaps how the rent space changes going forward in the next uh, 18 months or so. Um, also, renewable infrastructure as well. We've seen a derating there, probably down about 8% or so. So some of the big premiums that we saw at the start of the year on some of those renewable infrastructure names, some of them have eroded. Greencoat UK Wind is a name that we've talked about in weeks past, uh, and that's certainly seen its premium rating. It still remains on a premium rating, but it's lower now than it would have been through most of the year. Um, at the other end, the big winner in terms of the positive re-rating would be in the biotech and healthcare space. And as you've just mentioned, actually a number of those names have done very well. But I think that's probably be skewed by um, some of the, the names that invest in private companies. So Syncona being a case in point. Also commodities have benefited from being re-rated as well. 
Um, so I think we talked about funds like the BlackRock uh, World Mining Fund uh, and Riverstone Energy would also be in that space as well. And then my sort of final question on performance, I think what I might do is I might put some of these little charts you've produced, uh, Simon, on the website, if you're happy with that, so that people can actually see them. So lots of other things we could have talked about and haven't talked about. We couldn't mention the fact that the Ruffer Investment Company has invested in Bitcoin. That got a lot of attention this week, which is a good way to get a headline anyway. And that's a very interesting topic, which we can maybe return to another time. I need to finish really by just updating listeners on what we're planning to do. We are now going to take a break until the new year. I may record something just before for new year, but that won't be my normal conversation with Simon. It will be uh, something different. But we will be resuming in the first week of January when we'll have a chance to see what life beyond the Brexit transition period is going to be like, for better or worse. And hopefully there'll be some news also about whether the virus has indeed done more damage over the Christmas period or not, which is a live topical issue at the moment. And then finally, I'd like to mention that uh, Moneymakers, which produces these podcasts, and they will always remain free, I can give you that pledge, is also going to be producing a subscription newsletter offering in the new year. And I hope maybe one or two of you will be interested in that. But for the moment, it remains for me to say thank you to Simon for his sterling work over the whole course of this year. You will have appreciated what a wonderful fount of uh, wisdom and knowledge he is. So, Simon, I'm going to let you have a break for a couple of weeks. I know you're going to be working very hard. But in any case, uh, from me anyway, thank you very much. And to uh, everyone who's listened, thank you for listening. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.